This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast and live stream. If you're watching it live, it's Matt Larkin here with Ryan Kennedy, our fellow senior writer, Ken Campbell. He's still just tumbling in the desert like a tumbleweed, I guess, and he's doing coyote stuff, and I think he's in California last we checked. He's still living the life out there. He'll be back pretty soon, I think maybe by our next podcast. We'll see. Possibly. We'll try to pull some strings and keep him out there longer, if possible. Uh, keep him away from the podcast. Just one more week. Give ourselves a little break. For now, it's just me and Ryan, and there's a lot to talk about. Uh, we're in the stretch run. There's just so much going on all around the league, not just in the NHL as well. But we're going to start with, with the NHL and the Edmonton Oilers assigning. Uh, it was reported by Bob McKenzie. It was close to being finalized as of this afternoon. Monday, it is finalized. Darnell Nurse, two-year extension, uh, $5.6 million cap hit. And what's fascinating, of course, is the extension. It does not buy any years of unrestricted free agency. It takes him right to his first year of unrestricted free agency. So to me, it's, I don't want to say a head-scratcher, but there are at least some concerns. I understand, you know, the logic, as Bob had tweeted, was that the Oilers were trying to navigate around their cap. They have a lot of free agents this summer. They have Ethan Bear, who's a restricted free agent, to resign. So they're trying to dodge around that. But I still have questions about it. I want to hear what you think first, Ryan, mm. about this deal. It's a good deal for Darnell Nurse. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you get paid in the short term. And also, as you mentioned, it, it takes them right to under, unrestricted free agency. So you look at the type of player that Darnell Nurse is – there's not a lot of those guys left in the NHL. A guy that, you know, can play really physical. He can drop the gloves. He can contribute offensively. He can play a lot of minutes. He's got a very tantalizing profile. So for me, if you're Darnell Nurse, I, I know there's talk that they're thinking about the next extension, even though they already just signed this extension. But if I'm Darnell Nurse, I think I look at this situation and say, well, I could take it to July 1st. Um, at the end of this two-year extension and see what my options are, see if somebody is willing to offer me even more money. And I, I think it's great for him because if for whatever reason the Edmonton Oilers do not grow into a Stanley Cup contender in the next two years, and with McDavid and Dreisaitl, let's face it, they should. They should be going in that direction pretty quickly then maybe Nurse says to himself, maybe I'll just go to another team that's closer. I think he'd be uh, pretty high on a lot of lists. And again, you look at the price, he doesn't have to take a home team discount if he doesn't want to. Maybe he's just really in for the long haul with the Oilers, and this is his way of getting paid but also helping them out. But I think it, it's, it's very savvy work by the Darnell Nurse camp in getting this deal that that offers him so much freedom once the new extension is done. I agree with you uh, from Nurse's perspective. I think it's a, it's a a great deal because he's still going to have a lot of good years left in his career by the time he gets his next deal and it could be lucrative if he has a good couple of years. From the Oilers perspective, I I don't I don't fully see it. Uh, to me, especially the idea that they're trying to navigate around the cap, but when you sign a guy short term to this sort of like it's it's the luxury bridge. It's not like the unproven guy who signs a bridge for a couple million dollars, five five point six. That's like the luxury bridge. It's nice. It's a nice bridge. It's kind of like Kucherov was the one who started that trend. If you're signing that bridge, then to me that implies that if you were signing a long term deal, the cap hit would be lower. 
Because you take you get term and then you don't have to spend as much on a yearly basis, just like Oscar Kleppbaum. I believe it's a seven year deal he signed, four point six seven or four point four point one six seven million a year. And I assume that if Nurse had signed a long term extension, it would have been a cap hit more in that range. So I don't understand how in the short term signing this contract actually helps the Oilers. I'm genuinely confused about that. Mm. Uh, I also look at their cap situation. They're projected right now to have more than thirteen million in cap space. And yes, you have to sign Bear, who's been a really good rookie, but I don't think there's a real bank breaker, bank bank breaker UFA or, or RFA that they have to really worry about right now. Kyler Yamamoto's been great, but I don't think he's up yet, as far as I know. Uh, and you've already taken care of Zach Cashin. Like Mike Smith's not going to break the bank unless they're trying to look forward and maybe they're thinking they're going to make a run at I don't know Braden Holtby or something. Mm. But I still, from a cap perspective, I don't get it. And now what happens is, by the time Nurse is negotiating his next long-term deal. He's 27 when the new contract's going to start. He's a very physical player. If he signs an eight-year extension, then that's going to pay him until he's 35. Big, strong guy like that in today's game. Those players don't always age as well. To me, it would have made more sense to get him locked up to an eight-year deal earlier and so that it expires earlier. So I don't know. I, I don't. To me, it doesn't add up. Maybe I'm dumb. Maybe I'm missing something from the puzzle. But in my mind, if he signed a long-term deal, it would be a cheaper cap hit. My only thought on that would be the idea of buying UFA years. So say they had gone with a three-year bridge deal instead of a two, all of a sudden, you know, if you're Darnell Nurse's agency, you say, okay, well, you know, we could have gone for free agency and maybe we could have gotten eight. So if we're signing this contract now, we want an AAV of 6.5 instead of 5.6, for example. It's also, I don't know if there's anything here to consider, but, I mean, we do have the Seattle expansion draft coming up. I'm not sure if contract lengths, if things you know match up there where you want to protect yourself because you don't want to lose Nurse um, to Seattle. I'm just I'm just gonna say Seattle when we talk about anything these days because, because Seattle because we, we need to start thinking about it. Um, but I, I, all these factors have to be considered when you're putting together a contract like this in this day and age. Fair and and you know it's tough with Nurse. I just I don't I do wonder if there's another angle that we haven't explored, and it's that. Do we know for sure that the Oilers want Nurse as part of their long-term plans? And, you know, with the way Bears played, you have Philip Broberg eventually developing. And if they're willing to risk him getting to that unrestricted free agency at a relatively young age, I do wonder if they're treating it as an evaluation period. And Nurse has been a good member of this team. He's the most physical guy in the team. He's capable of playing big minutes. But when he was picked in the first round, people were, if you remember in our draft preview, people were mentioning him in the same breath as Chris Pronger. Mm. His upside was extremely high, and it doesn't appear he's going to reach that ceiling. So I do wonder if the Oilers, by, you know, not buying any years of free agency are just keeping the door open in case he doesn't show them what they want to see in the next couple of years. I'm not sure. But I'm genuinely confused. And if anyone's watching live and, and I'm missing something, if I'm being dumb by mis- by not understanding how how he, this this contract is helping them with the cap, send a message. Stephen will file it to me. It can be a chirp saying I'm dumb. Tell me what I'm, <laughs> tell me what I'm not You're seeing. You're setting yourself up here. That's okay. At least, I, at least I, I'll be prepared for it. I'm bringing it on myself. Because I, if you're watching live, like just this is my face right now. I'm like, huh? But wait, save save cap space? No, it doesn't add up to me. So I'm 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 genuinely confused. Uh, sticking with defensemen picked in the first round, another one, uh, Seth Jones, great defenseman, 
picked in the first round 2013, and he's now out indefinitely. It's been, it, it kind of pains me to see it from Columbus's perspective. They've been such an inspiring story. They lose Panarin, they lose Duchesne, and they lose Bobrovsky, and, you know, Elvis Merzlikens has been incredible. Five shutouts in eight games, and, the, and I think John Tortorella is emerging as a coach of the year candidate with Certainly. the way he's gotten this team to overachieve. Uh, and now you lose your most important player, and the timeline is it's very nebulous. It's mm-hmm. out indefinitely. I was saying to Ryan before we went on the air here, to me, when it's ankle injury and it's out indefinitely, my amateur, and I say very amateur doctor <laughs> prognosis, uh, it's like my daughter with a little plastic doctor. As a doctor hockey kid, writer, yeah. I think I know a little doc, something about Nick, medicine. I understand about medicine. <laughs> uh, I think it's probably a high ankle sprain, because that's the type of ankle injury. If it was broken ankle, they might say so, but mm. when it's out indefinitely, the timeline's murky. That sounds like a high ankle sprain to me, which uh, sometimes th- those can take a long, long time to heal. It can take months. So it depends on the player, though, right? So um, my question is, you know, this team, they're, I believe, two points up. Uh, Philly is the team that's dropped out of the wild card race. Uh, and Columbus is right now, they're in a top three spot in the Metro. But if you count the teams chasing them, uh, so they have a two-point cushion right now. I believe Philly has a game in hand. Uh, Elvis Merzlikens has obviously been amazing, but... Do you think I have a few questions about Columbus right now? But the first mm-hmm. one is: Is this going to be a death knell to their playoff hopes? Let's let's say that Seth Jones misses a month. Is that going to be the difference between them making and missing the playoffs? I think it could be. You know, you still got Zach Wierenski, fair enough, but they don't have a lot of high end depth on that blue line now that Jones is gone, and Ryan Murray is still out. I, at this point, I mean, Ryan Murray, it's it's really unfortunate how often the injury bug bites him. You know, they called up Gabriel Carlson, and I I just worry that this team doesn't have enough to, because it's it's such a knife's edge in the Metropolitan Division right now. And if you drop just two or three games that you ordinarily would have won because of the great play of Seth Jones, the great two-way skill set that he brings to the ice, then all of a sudden you're on the outside looking in instead of the other way around. And it's unfortunate because Columbus has been one of the best stories of the entire season. And you're right, Merz Lickens has been great. But then you take away a guy who, you know, is if not a Norris contender, then at least Norris adjacent mm-hmm. in Seth Jones. And I I want to see the complexion of this team. That's that's the big challenge for me is the the margin of error is gone. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think there is a direct tie into Elvis Merzlikens here. So, uh, am I a believer in Merzlikens? Yes and no. Uh, I, I think he's been genuinely amazing. If you look at their, I think I think it's like 47, 48 goalies have played at least a thousand minutes of five on five this year. He's second in goals saved above average per sixty minutes. Uh, he ranks right up there. I think he's also second in high danger save percentage. I think Tukaraska is first in both categories. Um, but he's also faced some of the fewest rush attempts per 60 minutes, and the average shot distance in terms of how close the puck is being shot from right. is he's among the lowest, or, or sorry, highest in the league. So as in good defense means a, a high number in your average right. shot distance, okay? So you remove Seth Jones from the equation, and Merzlikens, right. he's, he's not facing a, a relatively high number of high-danger uh, chances. He's not facing very many rushes. He's not facing very many shots from in close relative to the rest of the league. Mm. And you take your best defenseman out. Merzlikens' workload, which has been relatively easy, suddenly becomes a lot harder because yeah. it's a good defensive team in front of him. So I do wonder if he's going to be tested in a way he hasn't been. Obviously, he's been amazing. Five shoutouts in eight games. Like, yes. it's. I'm not trying to take away from him. I'm just saying that he's been very good, but he's also had a good 
defensive structure in front of him. So there's more pressure on him now to stay hot with Jones out. I think that's going to possibly spell trouble for Columbus. And that kind of ties to my next question, which is, you know, last year we had Yarmulkek line and he went all in. He totally went for it at the trade deadline, which is really exciting. Yeah. Uh, this season, now there was there were sort of whispers in the last few weeks about him doing the same thing, which no one would have expected in the summer, of course, after all the losses, but they're right in the middle of the hunt. So in light of this injury, do you still think the Columbus Blue Jackets should consider buying or do they have to back off now? Back off. No, totally. I, it's interesting because... They do not have their second rounder this year. They do not have their third rounder this year. They do not have their second rounder in 2021. They only drafted three players last year total. So you're looking at a team where, yes, they are one of the better teams in their division right now. And they have some pretty decent prospects. But you always need to be replenishing. And right now they're in a bit of a trough in that sense. So I don't think you can give up any more draft picks, which means then that if you're going to be a buyer at the deadline, you got to make the quote-unquote hockey trade. So you say to yourself, okay, well, are we willing to give up Sonny Milano to upgrade? Or or Josh Anderson, maybe. Or Josh Anderson. Um, And it's been a tough season for Anderson between just stats and injuries. So are you going to get full value for him at this point? I, I, I just think it's it's not the right time to do so, especially with Seth Jones out. And maybe, I mean, the only silver lining here is that Seth Jones is out so much longer um, from the deadline that you have basically three weeks to assess where you're at. So if Columbus drops like the next five games, then you say, okay, we're done. Uh, yeah. We'll try again next year. If they win the next five games, then all of a sudden you're in a bit of a conundrum where you say, okay, well, maybe we can make some noise here. But I just I don't think they have the infrastructure to do so. Yeah, I agree. I think you have to treat the playoffs right now as a bonus if it happens, especially relative to the lack of the high-end prospects You know, since drafting Pierre-Luc Dubois. I think mm. they need another really top-end guy to inject into the system to build around. Uh, so I don't think it's a year where you want to be giving up a first-round pick, especially with that, that draft class being deep. Yeah, uh, And... To me, it's it's a matter of just seeing where you are. And then, like you said, if they get on a hot streak, then you really want to get on your team doctors and get a very definitive timeline of, what, of, of Seth Jones' recovery. If you know he's going to be back in time for the playoffs and you've built a cushion in the next couple of weeks, fair enough. But I think otherwise, it, I don't think they should sell. But I think standing pat or maybe a hockey trade. It seems mm. like Josh Anderson and the Blue Jackets don't have a long-term fit as a marriage together. So maybe if you find a hockey trade for some defensive help that can help, you know, bridge that gap and you, you can find a team that needs a big crash and bang winger, maybe it works, you make a hockey trade. But otherwise, I think this is the deadline to be a bit more conservative. Yep. Uh, I got We got a comment. It's not about Darnell Nurse, though. It's from Jeremy Buchert. Matt Larkin as a doctor would probably end up being as good as Dr. Nick from The Simpsons. Jeremy, I give that, that burn really thumbs down because you missed it. I did a Dr. Nick voice. I did that joke before you did, so the burn doesn't work. I was out in front of it. I did Dr. Nick's voice already. So <laughs> boo, boo. Uh, next topic is one that, it's funny, I was so optimistic about this several years ago, and now every time it comes up, I find I've become a pessimist. I've totally mm. flipped, and I'm talking about NHL participation in the Olympics. Uh, there has been reported progress, depending on who you're speaking to, uh, the IOC, IAHF, 
They have recently said they're willing to address many of the NHL's concerns about sending players to 2022 Olympics. That means, of course, insurance and travel costs and a new nugget, which is the marketing rights for players and league to footage from the Olympics. I think that's a very important one. Uh, And, of course, Matthew Schneider from the NHLPA has expressed openly his optimism uh, about the situation. So that's nice. That's all well and good. Uh, It's not the same as someone from the NHL side saying that. So I have many thoughts, but Ryan, I want to hear what you have to say first. Has the needle moved for you? Do you think this is getting us any closer to seeing NHLers in the 2022 Olympics? I mean, yes and no. I think it gets us a little closer because you you see some budging on the one side. But when I look at this, I think of it from an owner's perspective – and the owners will say, oh, that's all nice. Do the games play in my arena? No. They're on the other side of the planet? Oh, I don't care. I want my superstars in my building. I don't want the season interrupted where no one's paying attention to my team. And that's, I mean, that's how the owners are going to view things because it's their business and the players work for them, and Gary Bettman works for the owners, so that's the hard tack that he's going to take. Uh, You know, the marketing rights, that's interesting. Maybe that's a bit of a carrot that you dangle, but I just think that the owners just don't want it, Mm -hmm. and it's not something that the players can really do much about right now, so it seems to me that it's at a bit of a, not a stalemate, uh, but it's just uh, it's just sort of a, a non-starter, let's say. Yeah, I think you're right, and I, I do think that the you know the marketing rights that's something. That's at least a hint of something that's tangible value for the, the thing owners. With the fingers means yeah. the money. Yeah, the money, money. I think that's a start, uh, but I don't think it's going to move the needle for a bunch of billionaires. I don't think it's going to be enough. Uh, like you said, it's <laughs> having things in your own building, sharing the revenues. That would be different. Yeah. Like the World Cup, of course, is, is the type of thing that they're on board with, of course. Uh, and I did, I, I was doing some sniffing around recently, talking to some people closer to the situation, and to, and the implication, more or less, was that you know the offer would have to be much better, not just the same it was as as a, as what it was last time, which was insurance cost and travel, but but better mm. to even have a chance of convincing the NHL. So it's debatable whether marketing rights is enough. I don't think it is. And ultimately, we know there's only one thing, and I think the NHL's been fairly forthcoming about it. The way to get NHLers to the Olympics in 2022, it's got to be part of a trade, a concession in the next CBA. If the NHLers are willing to give up something else, and in exchange, the NHL gives them Olympic participation, that's the type of deal I think that we're going to see. Mm. Uh, next CBA, of course, isn't eligible to, to begin till I guess 2022, right? The current one expires 2022 after it got extended. Uh, but that's what it's going to take. And I, I do think, you know, credit to the NHL, they've been pretty upfront about that. It's True. going to be part of a trade. Yep. And this is this is good PR. It's nice to hear that the IOC and the IHF are trying, but this time I'm not... I, I was so optimistic last time because I believed that the players, they really wanted to go and they still do, but that's not enough. The owners have all the power here, so yep. we'll see. Uh, we had a trade, of course, uh, a few days ago at the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's one that was speculated for a long time, not necessarily with this exact goaltender, but we knew the Leafs and Kyle Dubas were pursuing a backup goalie. They finally did get one in Jack Campbell from the LA Kings, and they got another player they've been linked to uh, pretty much all season because Kyle Dubas used to represent this guy, uh, Kyle Clifford, right, Uh, to get some checking for the grinding line. Uh, So my question is, you know, we knew based on team needs that these are the kind of players the Leafs needed. They need a bit of grit. They need a backup goaltender. But was it too little too late? And I know, Ryan, you wrote about this. I'm curious Mm. what your thoughts are. 
Well, you know, I, I thought the weekend was fairly successful for Jack Campbell. He he earned them three or four points during two games where, frankly, the Leafs played like crap. I was there against Anaheim, and, you know, Anaheim had played the night before, and Anaheim is already a bottom-of-the-barrel team this year, and the Leafs barely squeaked by them in overtime. And I thought Campbell actually played pretty well, even though the final score was 5-4. I, I wouldn't have faulted him on any of the goals, really. So I think... Campbell's already kind of done his job. He has kept them afloat while Fred, Frederick Anderson is out with that neck injury. Kyle Clifford, I think this is the kind of guy that they did need. And he's probably more valuable in the playoffs when things get a little rougher. Um, you know, that first game against the Ducks, he took a couple of penalties that um, ended up being not of the best variety and did not help. But I think he makes his teammates feel bigger themselves, that they can have a little more space out there. And again, you know, if the Leafs make the playoffs, fate tells us they will play the Boston Bruins because that is the only team they can play. And Kyle Clifford will punch any Bruin in the face. Fair. He will punch any Bruin in the face. (laughs) And that's something that Toronto didn't have in the past. Nazem Kadri would hit you from behind. Yes. But that's not the same thing. Scientific analysis, right? Scientific analysis. And uh, Nazem Kadri would get suspended for that every year against the Bruins. And that is uh, not helpful. Whereas Kyle Clifford would merely get a five-minute penalty for punching a Bruin in the face. And then the Bruins would hypothetically not punch other Maple Leafs in the face. (laughs) So in that sense, if they get to the playoffs, in which case they will play the Boston Bruins, I think Kyle Clifford uh, will have a, a great deal of value. Now, the thing with the Leafs is that they hemorrhaged so many points early in the season that they're really scrambling right now. So... I mean, unfortunately, they, they can't take a game off, as the great cliche goes. So I, I, I think it was a trade they had to make. And, yeah, maybe if you made it the week before and saved the Leafs from another Michael Hutchinson appearance, you know, if they, if they missed the playoffs by a point, then you kick yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, they made the deal. And, you know, fortunately, they have such great forward depth that – a utility player like Trevor Moore was an easy player to deal, and he already, you know, he just scored for the Kings the other night, so good for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a pretty solid trade. Yeah, and I think you're right. It's possible we look back on it and, and realize, oh my goodness, you know, if they made the trade a week earlier, it could have made a difference. But you could say the same thing. If we had fired Mike Babcock a week earlier, it could have made a difference. I think they're 29-4 mm. and four or something like that under Sheldon Keefe, something, uh-huh. something like that. Uh, and to me, I, I, I sometimes think people were, were being nice to Michael Hutchinson and, and actually underplaying just how poor he was. And I believe it's 58, 59 goalies have played 1,000 more minutes of 5-5 five five this year. And goal saved above average, I, I use the stat a lot. It's kind of like the all-encompassing how good is this goalie stat. Martin Jones, second year in a row, dead last. Second last, Michael Hutchinson. Mm. He's had a terrible season. He's graded out just awfully. And Jack Campbell in the same stat was middle of the pack. He's 31st. And that's right about what you want your backup goalie sure. to be. He's middle of the pack. He's good enough. He's not going to be absolutely dominant stealing game after game. But we know the pedigree's there. He did show it last year. Bill Ranford, I think, changed his career a lot. Uh, the one thing to watch out for is that in terms of the quality of workload, even though the Kings are a bad team overall, they didn't do that bad of a job in terms of limiting the quality of chances on Jack Campbell. It's a different story when you stop pucks for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Mm-hmm. They're not so good at protecting their goalies. I feel like they, they haven't been for decades. Probably Every version not. of the Leafs team is just they're more about offense and not about protecting their goalies. So Campbell's workload is going to be tougher. I think he's going to be tested. Even though the Leafs are a better team, of course, they 
they win by scoring. He's going to be tested in a different way than he was with the Kings. Mm. Um, but at the same time, he doesn't have to be that good. He just has to be decent. He just has to be just a bit better than Michael Hutchinson. And it sounds like Freddie Anderson's injury to his neck is not that serious. There's talk that he could even be back tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, to start that game, in which case Campbell goes back to just being the occasional relief guy. And to me, that's the thing. If you hear Campbell's comments post-game, uh, after his first couple of games, he's clearly putting a lot of pressure on himself. Sure. And it's good that it seems like he really cares. I, I don't know if you want someone who's putting that much heat on himself because <laughs> if Anderson's out long-term in this market, suddenly it's so Jack Campbell's got to save the season. But either way, I think it's an important trade. Uh, and to me, the Leafs, you know, like you said, Ryan, sacrificing Trevor Moore, they have the depth, necessary evil. I don't think they can be finished, though. I, th- I don't think Kyle Dubas can be finished. I think that missing the playoffs with this team, investing so much money into the Stars would be an absolute disaster. And to me, that means, especially with Morgan Riley still out, you have to go out and get another top-end defenseman. Mm. I think in this case, even though Riley's on the left, you've got to look for the right-side guy. Matt Dumba is the name that's come up a lot. I think he's the perfect fit. He's the type of guy you need to be chasing, even if it's going to cost you a Casper Kapanen and someone like that, probably more. Uh, but to me, the Leafs, more than most teams, I actually do. There's a thing I do for a magazine called the Pressure Rankings, and I think I did it at the start of the season. The Leafs were very high mm-hmm. after missing the playoffs, you know, and that's why they, they fired Mike Babcock, a team under a lot of pressure. Missed the playoffs or, or, or losing the first round three years in a row. Uh, they cannot miss the playoffs. It'll be an absolute disaster here. So you got to put pedal to the metal, make another big trade if you're Kyle Dubas. I think he has as much pressure on him as any GM in the league going to the trade deadline. Uh, some exciting news, the U.S. Rivalry Series, U.S.-Canada Rivalry Series, women's hockey, national teams, they played in Anaheim over the weekend. Uh, I think U.S. won that game 4-1, continuing their series, and the attendance was more than 13,000 people. It was a record for a women's game on U.S. soil. Uh, the same weekend, we have the NWHL All-Star Game, which doesn't have even the best stars in the sport because they're playing the Rivalry Series. Yeah. Uh, and that sells out. So what I'm wondering is, you know, Obviously, there are wins here and there for women's hockey, and sometimes people will downplay them and say it doesn't mean the NHL is ready to step in and sponsor a league that's unified, the top pro league in the world. But are we getting closer to that critical mass? We keep seeing these wins, including the three-on-three event, which was very successful at the All-Star Game, arguably the best thing about the skills competition. So are we getting closer? Do we have enough wins, at least in terms of good PR, that it's time for the NHL to start rethinking the idea and consider sponsoring a unified league? Well, I don't think necessarily the problem is NHL buy-in. I think the problem is that the NHL doesn't want to have two women's leagues. And until the NWHL folds, the NHL is going to be very hands-off. And it's awesome that we're seeing these rivalry games get the attendance that they do. And it's awesome to see how certain NHL teams have helped out you know obviously you know this event was in Anaheim and we've seen uh some of the uh professional women's players the the non-NWHL the stars uh play against San Jose Sharks alumni for example and you know they've played in Toronto they played in Victoria BC they've been all over the place and these are the best women uh, the same that we saw at the all-star game in St. Louis so I think that the idea of a new women's league that is backed by the NHL, I mean, it's it's ready to go. I don't think it would be difficult to put it together. And in this media landscape, yes, it's crowded, but it's also so open now that 
you can have a, a quote-unquote new sport, even though women have been playing hockey, obviously, forever. But to have a new league, I think there's still room there because you can segment off audiences. And you know, having games online is a lot different now uh, than even five years ago. But it also changes the landscape because, you know, 50 years ago, you only had like three stations on television. Now that doesn't matter. You can have streams, you know, you can have Twitch, whatever you, you, know, you can have it on TikTok, I say, because I'm 40. Um, <laughs> I know that's not how TikTok no. works. I don't know how TikTok works, but I know that's neither, not how it neither works. Neither do I. Right. It's funny. I'm only it 36. It involves dancing. I've noticed I've started backing into parking spots like crazy since really? I turned 36. I'm like, oh my God, I'm a dad. I would I, never back And now I don't know spot. how to use TikTok. Yeah. I'm, I'm old now. I make fun of myself saying, should I get a TikTok account? I should not. Um, <laughs> but getting back on topic, it, it's all about the NWHL right now. And once that ceases operations, I think we see something happen super quick from another interested party. And it's not that I want the NW, NWHL to collapse, but that's the reality is you can't have two women's leagues. And that's become very evident. But what has also become evident is that there is quite an appetite for professional women's hockey. And so something's got to give eventually. And, it, yeah, it's good to see this. Um, but I, I think we're past the proof stage. We know people will watch women's mm-hmm. hockey. Now it's a matter of getting that product in the right form to the fans. I think you're right. And and to me, I do wonder, you know, if there's a solution with the NWHL that involves it being enveloped. If the NHL is involved, could there be a buyout situation? Because then you could carry over some of the branding. You've already established some equity with certain teams, like, you know, the Boston Pride, et cetera. And maybe those teams could keep their branding and their fan bases, except now they're part of the bigger league. And, I mean, that that's the history of, of so many sports is being built like sure. that. With leagues merging and you keep teams that were in another league and they keep their colors, their branding, their name, and they just grow, right? Yeah. So I wonder if that would be possible. Um, and you look at the, you know, there's been talk and over the years when we've done different stories, the the – the opinion was always that the NHL is so cautious. They're so smart with their business. They don't want to dive in until they know something's a sure thing. But the interesting thing to me is, you know, you look at the WNBA, and I was looking at some of their attendance. This year they averaged, uh, last season, more than 6,000 fans. But their best seasons in their history were their first season, their first couple seasons. I think it was year two. So there was a huge spike in excitement when it first started. So the idea of being unsure about the investment, I mean, maybe down the road, but you could capture a lot of excitement early uh, if you lose, if you use WNBA as an example, when a league debuts, there's a lot of early enthusiasm, and maybe that would be an opportunity to build a big enough fan base that it could be something that could. I don't know if it could make money, maybe break even at least, and maybe be a lost leader for a little while. But in the long run, I think it would be good for growing the game. Sure. Uh, and if you look at, you know, one of the biggest criticisms about the NWHL that the casual fan will say is, I don't know where to watch the games. When are the games? Where are the games? I find just the access to that information is not as good as it would be for a major league. But if you had the NHL backing it, the NHL streaming it on its platforms and just using its own social media team, just it's yeah. the resources are so significant. I think that alone would make a difference in the level of interest, the level of attendance, the viewership. Sure. So I I think I do think compared to even a couple years ago, we're getting closer. I think you're seeing some of the bigger stars in the game, people like Hillary Knight and Kendall Coyne Schofield. Their their recognizability is going up. Uh, and I, I think we're getting close to that critical point. Uh, I'm feeling more optimistic than I have in years, maybe ever. So here's nice. hoping something happens. Maybe next season, two years, who knows? Mm-hmm. The other idea I had is, is there a happy medium? And the happy medium would be, 
could the NHL do an experiment? And could they try something like you... So let's let's say it's... I mean, it would have to be the NWHL teams in the event of a, a partnership, okay? Do you do, in September, a March Madness-style tournament? So it's a short-term event with women's teams... And you wouldn't do international because that's too similar to a World Cup or Olympics. So they're club teams. Okay. So I guess in this case, you know, for the sake of this idea, let's say it's the NWHL teams. Mm-hmm. And they compete in a March Madness-style tournament. But maybe it's only eight teams, 16 teams, whatever it's going to be. And it's a short-term event that you could use to gauge interest. And I feel like that would be pretty exciting, especially if you had sign-off and you had some of the best players in the world playing in this tournament. Uh, and that could be a way to sort of dip your toes in the water and see what the interest level is. It's the same thing as what the NHL did. Just you know, they they didn't host a full women's all star game. They hosted a three on three event. It went very well. So I don't know. I think there are ways to dip your toes in the water and, and gauge the interest rather than just diving right in. I wouldn't mind if they dove right in, but we'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Just a reminder: still time to ask questions. We got a few more coming in. Well, we got some good ones. We got some. Stephen right. says we got some good ones. All right. Here's one where Jim Rebuker asked. Uh, or he said that we need to get a TikTok so we can watch Ken Campbell lip sync Lizzo. All right. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Would any of you guys want to see? That? I, I kind of. I think I would. I've yeah. seen him do "Single Ladies" by Beyonce. <laughs> oh my God. It's pretty good. Okay, now we're gonna have. To he do does that. the dance yeah. moves. Okay. Is, what's the difference between TikTok and a boomerang? I don't know. I should know. I'm not that it's old. Just, boomerang just like you do a video and then it just reverses. Oh, yeah. So, like a, like a boomerang. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that till wow. now. It makes sense. Well, okay. Lizzo, or, uh, Took a second. Tick, TikTok is like we share short little videos. Okay. Yeah. And it used to be dominated by eight-year-olds. This is thrilling content. People are watching <laughs> us learn about other types of video content. <laughs> Let's just get it on the screen here yeah, for a yeah, second. Yeah, why not? Why not? Uh, in the last couple of days, Patrick Laine has started one of his patented, like like Patrick Laine, the equivalent of when you're playing i got to date myself again. You're playing the Mario games and you get the, get a star. Da, da, right. Da, da, da. He, he has one of those every year. Last year he had 18 goals in a 12-game stretch. Now he's got nine in his past nine games, up to 24, I believe, on the season, 23 or 24. Yeah, 24. And he's pretty quietly uh, now has the seventh most goals by any player before the age of 22. With 12 more goals, he's going to pass Mario Lemieux and Bobby Carpenter. So if he gets 12 more before the end of the season, which is possible the way he's playing right now, sure. he'd be in the top five. And that doesn't even factor in era adjustments. Uh to me, and I, I've been saying this for a couple of years, I, I don't think people, A, realize how young Patrick Laine was when he was drafted and still is, uh, and B, give him enough credit because they're, you know, he, he's prone to slumps. I always defend him saying he's so young, that's going to age out of his system. I think as he gets older, he's going to be more consistent, which he has been this year, mm-hmm. uh, at least in terms of more well-rounded play, not necessarily goal scoring. But do you agree with that sentiment, Ryan? Do you think that Patrick Laine deserves more respect and that he is improving as a player? I think he's properly rated. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's underrated um, in his career, and granted he is young, less than a point per game. Uh, I think he's great at goal scoring. I think he's not great at other things. Um, the Jets are a wild card team right now, which is fine, uh, given all the turbulence that they've had. Um, the fact that basically half their defense core from last year got sheared off uh, from them, not really their fault. You know, like, I, I look at Line A, and he, he's a good player. But it's funny because I wrote a blog uh, today, today being Monday, about Austin Matthews hitting 40 goals. And it's kind of interesting because we always thought it's like, oh, Line A's the sniper. But Austin Matthews has become the better goal scorer, plus you get all the assists as well. And he's a natural center. Uh, and Austin Matthews uh, has more points in his NHL career, which started at the same time as Line A. And granted, Austin Matthews is a late birthday, so... He is older, 
but he has more points in fewer games than Line A does because Matthews has been injured a couple of times. So I think Line A has been what we expected him to be. I think he could probably take another step. I'd like to see him being a be a dominant player. Um, Grady's got 24 goals, but I mean, Patrick Line should probably be flirting with 40 <laughs> every year, right? I mean, if if he's the number two pick overall in a draft and goal scoring's his thing, I want to see a guy that's consistently challenging the OVs of the world. And in and you know, in this year, the Pasternaks, the Matthews is those sorts. So I think I think he's been good, but I don't think he's underrated. I think everything you're saying is true on the surface. Uh, I think he's been good. He's not been an elite player. Uh, I think he's improved his all-around game, though, this year, markedly. But the thing is, to me, he's underrated relative to age. And, and just to give some perspective, okay, so the day that Alex Ovechkin turned 22 years old, he had 98 career goals. Mm. Patrick Laine has, what, 30 more goals than that already? Patrick Laine is at 134 or something mm. like that now. Uh, and he's not even 22 yet. Mm. So to me, that's not to say Line is better than Ovechkin. It's to say <laughs> Line is so much younger than people realize that right. you know we can't properly evaluate what type of player he's going to be. He might still be a perennial 50 goal scorer. He might win Rocket Richard trophies because he's still only 21 years old. Uh, and I, I think if you look at some of the greatest players in NHL history, um, and, and not just the, the all time greats, but a lot of star players, their statistical peaks come more like 22, 23 years old. So I, I do think it's entirely possible we see Line put it all together just because of the quality of his shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just think, yes, it, it's true that he has not overall lived up to expectations, but I think that what he's doing for his age, and that all-time list really shows it. Um, and it's also, like, Matthews isn't on that list, right, before you're, before turning 22. Right. Uh, or he, he, isn't, he isn't someone from line A to pass on that leaderboard, right. as, as far as I remember. So I just think people need to, need to understand how young he is and that he's doing pretty freakish things for his age. If he's still scoring at this rate in a year, then I'll, I'll come around and say, okay, He's not going to be an elite player. He's going to be merely. He's going to be more of a Vladimir Tarasenko, hmm. a good goal scorer who never quite became an elite goal scorer. Hmm. Uh, let's do some questions now. We got yes. a few to get through. Uh, first one is from Joey McGrath, and Joey asks, "How can the Rangers work out re-signing Chris Kreider and RFA's Ryan Strom, uh, Tony D'Angelo, and Brendan Lemieux? Is Alexander Georgiev leaving? To me." Uh, Georgiev is the one who's most likely to leave. Igor Shosturkin's playing really well, yep. which is great news for the Rangers. Their mega prospect they've had for years is delivering on the hype, and I think he can form a tandem going forward with, as Henrik Lundqvist probably starts to play less and less going into next year. Uh, so Georgiev, to me, is an, is an easy trade candidate. When it comes to Kreider, it's interesting because all year it was, you know, Kreider, some people thought, was he going to even report to training camp because they were going to trade him before? Uh, and now you have Strom and Tony Giangelo have had tremendous years uh so is it just from a cap perspective nudging Kreider at the door maybe but all the reports coming out of new york suggest it's more of a mutually exclusive situation where either Kreider stays because they want that veteran leader and then maybe the other guys go or vice versa Mm -hmm. and tony d'angelo's guy he's got arbitration rights he's having a massive year but he's going to have a lot of bargaining power to command maybe a bigger raise than the rangers would be wanting to pay him on his next deal because they'd like to see him prove it more and that makes him maybe a sneaky trade candidate, in, in which case if you trade a D'Angelo and a Strom, then maybe end up keeping a Kreider. Um, Kreider's going to be expensive next year, probably $7 million plus per year. Mm. He's got such a unique skill set. But there's a case to be made that you know sometimes you need a few of those veterans around. He's a well-liked guy, based on reputation in the room. So I think they go one or the other. They don't keep all those players. Though. I don't think it's possible. Yeah, and for me, I say, you know, Kreider, he's – 
he's gone uh, simply because you have to move on. I, I don't think you have the cap space to do everything you want to in New York right now. Um, you're still going to have veterans. You're going to have Jacob Truba. You know, Mika Zibanejad's still in town, uh, for the time being at least. But Georgiev, I think he's gone too simply because he's such a good trade chip. And you, you just can't have three guys in the crease right now. Lundqvist is not going to go. Uh, he's got the no-move clause. He's been very open about his love for Broadway and the fact that he wants to stay in New York. So for me, looking at the future, I say you do a bridge deal for Strom and D'Angelo and say, look, in a couple of years, Mark Stahl's off the books and Henrik Lundqvist is off the books. That's like $12.5, maybe even $13 million worth of cap space in two players. Plus the cap's probably going up in the next couple of years. So all of a sudden, you say to Tony D'Angelo, look, if you think you can be a $7 million defenseman, for example, give us two years on a bridge and we will get you that seven-year $47 million, uh, $49 million. I'm not a math major, uh, $49 million deal. You know, with Strom, same deal. You're having a great season, uh, but we'd like to see you do it again. So let's do a bridge deal, and then you can really cash in, and you can be an, an integral part of this forward core. In net, Shesterkin's your guy long-term. Um, assuming you lose Georgiev, Lundqvist will retire a Ranger in two years, and then maybe you have Tyler Wall as your backup coming out of the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Or you have a stopgap until Wall is ready to be that backup. And then you got a great young tandem. And by that time, Shesterkin has already got a pretty nice uh, sample size of experience where you can say, yeah, that's our guy for sure. Uh, that's how I see things. And uh, I am, of course, the GM of the Rangers, so this will all happen. <laughs> I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. You're a GM of Rangers. I am the GM. Uh, next question is from I am Iron Kaniac, which I, is a play on Iron. I am Iron Man. I think his. I would assume so. Yeah, the Twitter bio is like actually the speech from Tony Stark at the end of Iron Man. 1, oh, not I Black Sabbath. No, I, well the the the, okay. the words in the uh, the Twitter bio. Okay. I was checking. I was like, oh, this is Tony's speech when he's on the TV at the end of the movie. Okay. Anyways. I am Iron Kaniac asked, has the league required this of all cities hosting outdoor games? And quotes, prior to the NHL approving the game, the Hurricanes must obtain financial commitments from local organizations and government to help offset the Canes' cost for presenting the game. So this is a, a tough one to figure out. Uh, what I can say is that it's not a unique thing only to Carolina. Uh, certain markets have been asked to pony up some money as well. An example that I uh, know of is Regina for the Heritage Classic in 2019. What I don't know for certain is if every single market uh, has to pony up. My understanding is certain major markets like you know Toronto hosting the Winter Classic, I don't think the city of Toronto has to raise, raise money. Uh, but I think certain markets, so in the case of Regina, it was because there wasn't an existing NHL fan base in that market. A market like Carolina, uh, obviously things are looking up with the storm surge, but I think relative to you know your your mega cold weather traditional hockey markets, the, the NHL's confidence in the fan support for filling a stadium maybe is a bit lower, which is why they'd be looking for a commitment. Uh, I'm going to try and find out. I have put in some questions to the league to find out if every city needs to get that a little bit of financial support or fundraising. Uh, so I am Iron Kaniac. If I get that answer, I will tweet the full answer to you. But I don't know uh, if, if it's true of every single market, every single outdoor game. What service? Mm -hmm. Very nice. Mm -hmm. 
Any thoughts or next question? What do you think? Next question. Okay. I, I don't have the answer either. So Yeah, uh, we both. So I, I went in and did a little homework on it, yeah. so that's why. Uh, next question. We're going to do two more. This one's from Luke Diamond. Or maybe maybe Dimon. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, especially because it's a Montreal question. Uh, what would a new Kovalchuk contract in Montreal look like this summer? Should he sign? Mm. Well... Uh, Kovalchuk is going to turn 37 in a couple months. I think his birthday's in April. He's the same age as me, son, and he's turning 37. So you have to be pretty, pretty careful if you're giving Ilya Kovalchuk multiple years on his deal. He has been a real hit in Montreal, I must admit, and it seems like he's loving playing there. Uh, there seems to be at least potential for mutual interest for him to come back. I don't think it's a good idea. I think that you have to sell high if you're Montreal and cash in the chip. Uh, but if they do bring him back... To me, it's got to be a one-year deal. You got to keep him hungry, right? At this right. age, like even if you're paying him five million dollars, whatever you want, if he, if he's if they believe he's been that good, fine. But one year, you can't give him term at that age. Yeah, you can't do anything that risks hurting his motivation. Uh, you could always trade him and then re- and then bring him back in the summer. I'm amazed that that doesn't happen more in hockey. Mm. It's a thing that everyone. I, it goes all the way back to like you know people used to always want Matt Sundin to do that when the Leafs finally trade or they didn't trade him actually he left. Uh, and I, it seems like a logical thing that so many more players should do, but it, it doesn't happen that often. But I think that would be, if he's really happy in Montreal, he can come back on July 1st. Yeah, I think uh, I would say a one- or two-year deal worth $6 million. That's six million total, so or six no, million. No, I think a year. six million a year. I think Ooh. you look because you look at Joe Thornton, and you know he had the one-year eight million dollar deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, not this season, but the season prior. So, you know, these guys, even though they're nearing the end of their careers, if they think they can contribute, they ain't taking discounts. And, and ter- yeah, term is what, what hurts a team, not, not the Term is what hurts, yeah. So I think with Kovalchuk, he probably asks for two at 12. And then if he if Montreal boxed at that, then I say one at six. But I think he's the type of player that he's not going to give a steep discount at this point in his career. Okay, interesting. Uh, we'll do one more question, and this is from uh, a listener called Sam McGrath. We've answered a question from Sam before, and we called him the small-town sheriff. Small-town sheriff, Sam McGrath, and we mm-hmm. answered the question in a southern accent. And he's requested that we answer this one in a southern accent All as right. well, uh, or at least that I read the question in a southern accent. So Sam McGrath opens, gets out of his cruiser <laughs> and says, Now, who do, who do you think will come out? As the top in the central, and which team makes it to the Stanley Cup final? Mm. So it's really it's a question probably between St. Louis and Colorado. Yeah. Uh, it's tough. The Blues, to, the, what they've done without Vladimir Tarasenko is very impressive. And if they get him back, and he was on the ice the other day, right, for a morning skate, if they get him back, I think they're going to be really dangerous. But Colorado, just they're the team on the rise. They, I just love how dynamic they are. Their speed, especially if... And Joe Sackick has the flexibility. He has the prospect capital. He has everything at his disposal to make another major upgrade at the trade deadline. I don't think there's a team better situated to make a big move uh, in terms of just cap space. Everything. He checks every box. I think he's done a, a masterful job constructing that team. Uh, it's peaking at the right time, and they have the flexibility to add. So I'm going to say Colorado. Also, just for ego's sake, my hot take preseason... Uh, prediction of Colorado, Florida in the cup final. Yeah. I want that to be true, so I look cool. Yeah. So for that reason, I'll, I'll break the tie and say Colorado. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be Colorado. It feels like St. Louis is starting to run out of gas a bit. And, I mean, you're right. If Tarasenko comes back, maybe that gives them a little pick-me-up. But I feel that the grind of going all the way 
to the Stanley Cup championship last year and then trying to repeat again as you know as division champions is starting to wear on the Blues and you look at Colorado they're obviously a little more refreshed they got some great young players and you know they got a lot of energy back there so I feel like it's going to be Colorado and uh, I would even say like keep an eye on Dallas mm-hmm Fair. People are sleeping on Dallas. They are. Uh, we had one more question at the buzzer. Somebody named Christian comes flying in, and Christian wants to know, uh, does Tampa need to add at the deadline? If so, what position? Tampa's a team, you know, I wrote about this last week. I think that they're peaking at the right time this year, which is going to make them so dangerous. They already were, on paper, the best team in the league last year. This year, they are coming from behind, and we saw with Washington a couple years back, when they weren't, they weren't so far ahead like they were last year. Uh, and then Washington, they won the President's Trophy twice in a row. They were too soft to come playoff time mentally, and then they were hungry. They started out, they were almost 500, I think, in November. In 2017-18, they win the Cup. Mm. The Lightning last year had the same problem. They're way ahead in the standings, and then they, they're set up. I mean, we didn't, no one think, thought that they were going to lose, but it, we did say in our podcast, our playoff preview podcast, if there was one possible weakness is that they hadn't played any meaningful games. This year... I think they're peaking just when it matters. They're so well-rounded. Anthony Sorelli is playing at a Selkie Trophy level. That's made them so much more dangerous. I don't think they need to add much. Uh, I think it helped. They've, they've brought in Patrick Maroon. I think if they were to add one more body, maybe another heavy, mm-hmm. because what happened last year, Columbus, especially at forward, they're a heavy team, and I think yeah. they pushed Tampa Bay around. Uh, and if Tampa eventually is going to have to tangle with a Boston, if they get you know past round one, you're going to need to play a heavy game to compete with them. So I, I could see them adding one more heavy piece. I don't know who it's going to be. It's like, would you like to get a Chris Kreider? Sure, of course. But Cap, yeah. I don't know if that's going to work. Maybe a Josh Anderson to bring it back to Josh Anderson. I think that's yeah. a guy, if his, you know, I don't know how healthy he really is. He's had, I think, shoulder problems. But that's a piece, I think, that wouldn't be too expensive to acquire that could put you over the top. I mean, they were against Josh Anderson last year. They in the playoffs, were. Right? So that would be the kind of guy I could see being a nice fit. Maybe he could play on their third line, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think if you can swing for something with your cap situation, go for it. Otherwise, for Tampa, you know, Steven Stamkos just got hurt. So you really just want to be healthy. If you have all of your guns going at the same time, you're a potent force. And I think you made a really good point there about them – playing difficult games late in the season and you know because they're still battling Boston that is certainly the case and again if Stamkos is out well then you got to cover for him which means somebody else is going to get a little more responsibility a little more top six time so I think it's kind of a, a blessing in disguise that they continue to have some adversity as they go through the season when they're healthy I think on paper they're still one of the best teams in the league if not the best team in the league And this, I think, will have them primed for success. Okay. Thank you to everybody for asking questions. That is it for the podcast this week. Thank you to our sponsor, Christian Hockey. We're taking a mini podcast hiatus because producer Steven, he's going to the Daytona 500. He loves his racing. Uh, Ford vs. Ferrari, good movie. Yes, Ford vs. Ferrari. Fantastic movie. Uh, We'll be back, I believe, It's February 20th, right, Stephen? Thursday, Thursday, February 20th. It's our trade deadline preview podcast. We're even going to bring Ken. We're going to dust off Ken and have him participate. You won't want to miss that podcast. That's next week, 10 days from now. And until then, enjoy the hockey, everybody.